Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. This week, we're talking with Gabriel Wynan about deindustrialization. Gabriel, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yep. My name is Gabriel Wynan. I am an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago. And I'm the recent author of The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. Okay, what the heck is deindustrialization? Deindustrialization really was first described in a kind of systematic way in the late 1970s and into the early 1980s, as it became clear that the loss of manufacturing or more broadly kind of blue collar work, factory work, but also to some extent construction, rail, warehousing, trucking, etc. that the loss of this kind of work was accelerating over a kind of secular trend, as opposed to kind of cycling up and down the way it always had. Now, various versions of this had been imagined and anticipated going back at least as far as the 1920s at different points in time, but that had never been the kind of predominant expectation. And in fact, particularly on the political left, the opposite had traditionally been the kind of conventional wisdom, which is that over time, the industrial working class will expand Hmm. as, you know, class society becomes increasingly polarized, the industrial working class will expand. And that will be the kind of basic mechanical impetus that leads to an exit from capitalism. In the whole kind of post-war period, there are these periodic recessions you know, after World War II, after the Korean War, again in the late 50s, again in the early 60s. And in each of them, hundreds of thousands, even millions of industrial workers are laid off, but they're unionized. They get called back after a few months or whatever. Their numbers are gradually, however, decreasing. And there are voices throughout this period, in particular on the black left, people like James Boggs, who are best positioned to notice that not the same number of people got called back every time as had been laid off. In particular, there was a kind of gradual replacement of labor by capital proceeding throughout this period. So on the one hand, we have this sudden shock in the late 70s and early 80s, which is when deindustrialization comes into common knowledge 
as something that is rapidly upending expectations on the left about the future of capitalist society, and in general, widespread expectations about what work is. On the other hand, there's a kind of longer tradition going back to the end of World War II, in some ways before, of noticing that there are kind of secular changes happening within industrial employment and eating away at it. One way or the other, we went from being a society that employed about 30% of our workforce in manufacturing and related blue-collar work to being a society that employs under 10% of our workforce in that. And in places like Pittsburgh, which my book is about, that's even a much steeper decline. Pittsburgh famously is the center of the steel industry. And in 1950, at the peak of industrial employment there during the Korean War, blue-collar work of different kinds amounted to about half of the entire labor market. How do I use deindustrialization? What my book is trying to argue is that the process of deindustrialization isn't simply subtractive or destructive, which is largely how we talk about it, and for good reason, because, you know, it's experienced by working class people around the world as, you know, an economic calamity. You know, when I say what I'm about to say, I don't say it to minimize that experience of the loss connected to it, which is tremendous in many, many places, including Pittsburgh. We shouldn't end the history of capitalism or the history of the working class at the point when the factory closes its gates and gets demolished. That's not actually the end of that story, but it has been the end in many ways of how we have told that story as historians. Now, there are complicated reasons for that that have to do with the ways that the industrial working class became a metonym for a larger kind of structural process called working class formation or class relations. You know, we allowed the classical specific instance of that to become the category. Then when the classic specific instance of it vanished or was crushed, people began to say that the category doesn't exist. So what I'm trying to do in my book is to show how the category survives, is larger than and survives the death of the specific instance. And to do that, I think you have to understand what historical processes deindustrialization sets loose. One thing that deindustrialization does is it remakes the population. In capitalist labor markets, you have populations that survive off of the sale of their labor power. When their long-established and relatively stabilized system for doing that falls apart, the actual basic mechanisms by which people do population-like things, like form families and reproduce, those are thrown into flux and people have to reorganize themselves around those questions. And they're going to do so in places that have built up welfare states through whatever instrumentalities of the welfare state, we could say, they're able to kind of grasp and put to their own use. So in a place like Pittsburgh, what happens is that the population gets significantly older, both because the young leave, looking for opportunity elsewhere, also because the industry had peaked in the 1950s, and so there was a very large older cohort that then kind of reached retirement right when the industry was collapsing in the 70s and 80s. You get this very old population, and this is common in Rust Belt cities and to some extent around the world in deindustrializing places. It produces older populations. It produces sicker populations. Well, it produces poorer populations, first of all, because people are losing good jobs. And then it produces sicker populations because an economic shock affects population health, an older population is a sicker population, and also because, and this is really the key argument of the book, when 
you have designed a healthcare system in the way that we did in this country by linking it to employment, which is a distinctive thing about American social policy, that you get your health insurance through your job. And if you're a steel worker in 1960, you get very good health insurance through your job. It's going to make sense for aging working class populations that are living in these deindustrializing contexts to lean on their health insurance to secure their survival as much as they can. It's the most generous avenue of social support that they have access to. So what that means is that a significant amount of social distress caused by deindustrialization, sickness, mental health issues, disability, potentially addiction, just old age and the forms of disability connected to old age, a significant amount of that, if you can manifest it as a health problem, you can then claim a stream of income in the form of your health insurance, paying for you to get services like someone making sure you're okay and, you know, checking on you and feeding you and doing your laundry in the form of you're sleeping in a hotel bed where they do the laundry, right? <laughs> Which is called a hospital. So basically a portion of the social damage of deindustrialization gets channeled into the healthcare system, causes it to grow. In a very similar way, I argue, or parallel way to a more familiar story, which is how industrial job loss causes the carceral state to grow because you have these displaced surplus populations, and then you have various kind of surpluses of state capacity lying around that can process these people. And then in doing so, manage a social problem. Now we may think various things about how that social problem is managed. And, you know, I think there should be hospitals. And I don't really think there should be prisons, but we can see that they're doing a similar thing in some regard. So that's to say, deindustrialization doesn't just end the story. It also causes things to grow. And in causing things to grow, it changes the structure of employment, right? So it's not just the end of employment, but rather healthcare comes to be the largest sector of employment in the country. And in places like Pittsburgh or Detroit or Milwaukee or Rochester or Buffalo, these classic Rust Belt places, this is an overstated pattern. How will deindustrialization save the world? We can imagine another episode of class formation or another instance of working class formation in our own time, emerging from formerly marginalized sort of sectors of the working class, both marginalized economically and racially and by gender, and also narratively within our historiography. That's not, I don't think, just the kind of hope that I have. I have reason to think that that can happen. It's not just that this is the largest workforce in the country, although it is. It's not just that it's larger still in places that have kind of historical legacies of working class struggle, which is what it means to say that it's larger in places like Buffalo or New York or Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, although that's also true. It's also that if you're gonna have a very large workforce like that, it means you're gonna have very large work sites. And this was historically a characteristic of industrial production that was thought to make it a site of class formation and class antagonism, was that it brought people together in large numbers where they could get to know each other and materially depend upon one another, right? In the process of production. And that creates the possibility of relations of solidarity among them. So, you know, in any given city, the largest employer is a hospital system. Typically, the largest, like, five employers are hospital systems, in fact. But beyond this fact, having used the healthcare system in the way that we did to buffer and manage and survive our way through deindustrialization, rising inequality, right, having ported that problem into the healthcare system for it to kind of take care of for us, it meant that we came to depend socially on that system much, much more than, you know, our grandparents did. 
When I was researching this book, one of the big archives for me was this collection of interviews that I found with working class women. They were done in the 70s by a group of feminists, sociologists, and anthropologists at Pitt. And they interviewed these triads. So like woman, her mother, and her grandmother. Cool. Hundreds of them. Wow. In those, those kind of groupings. And typically... The grandmothers were born in like 1890 or so in the old country. They were explicitly interested in immigrant experience. That was part of the selection. And then, you know, her daughter and her daughter. And when they talked to the old women, it, every interview, every single one, they asked them. It's one of the things they're interested in. They asked them, like, uh, how do you like going to the doctor? Do you, have old, do you have remedies from the old country that you like to use? And it's very clear that the interviewers are coming out of the women's health movement and are hoping to learn about women's medical knowledge and women's kind of folk medical practices as opposed to the alienating patriarchal medical establishment. Mm -hmm. But what they find again and again, yeah. basically, is women, women are like, these women they're interviewing are like, you kidding? The doctor? It's incredible. You go down to the hospital, <laughs> you stay as long as you want, they charge you nothing, they feed you, they change your sheets. We're like, what else do you get your sheets changed by somebody else? <laughs> like over and over. Um, I'm sort of saying this in the voice of my, my grandfather, I realized, instead of just doing his accent. <laughs> but um, yeah. to just kind of return this to the kind of larger yeah. argument I'm trying to make, yeah. you know, I don't think anybody really planned it this way particularly, but what, mm -hmm. the transition I'm describing since the 1970s of the expansion of the healthcare system, kind of mushroom-like, out of the collapse of industry, is, in fact, partly the suction of women's labor out of the unwaged zone of the home and into a kind of formalized or somewhat formalized workplace. I mean, it's a reality that a huge amount of, especially in the 70s and 80s, what was happening in the healthcare system mm -hmm. was not like surgery, right? But was mm -hmm. like someone checking on you and like taking your temperature and maybe, I mean, there's some technical stuff, right? There's like changing of yeah. IVs and this kind of thing, but there's also like feeding you, talking to you, changing your sheets, uh, you know, helping you go to the toilet, this kind of thing mm -hmm. that was very much on a continuum, you know, kind of materially with what women yeah. had done as part of the patriarchal family. And that's why when there's job loss all around yeah. and, you know, a generation of women realizes that they need to get jobs for the first time or maybe for the first time since they were a teenager, it's obvious to them what to do. Yeah. Right. It's obvious where you go look for a job. You know, maybe you volunteered at the hospital as a teenager anyway, mm -hmm. but it's seen and often quite explicitly, as part of a skill set that they already have. Mm -hmm. So that is a way of seeing capitalism and the welfare state administering mm -hmm. the industrialization of housework. Interesting. Which, you know, is, is like... Is <laughs> not what Angela Davis had in mind. Is not what Angela yeah. Davis had in mind. <laughs> and is not happening in a way that would, she would be happy about yeah. or that we should be happy about. Yeah. Right, because it depends on the economic and racialized and gendered coercion of poor women to do it for the rest of us. Yeah, right. That's basically what the book is describing. But nonetheless, it is creating in this kind of inverted form something that we can recognize as related to what she calls for, what she calls for the industrialization of housework. Yeah, and that you can then imagine struggling over politically to try to turn mm -hmm. into something nearer to what she describes. So long as the set of problems we've been talking about persists, right? Like inequality gets worse, inequality gets dumped into the healthcare system, manifests as demand for care that causes the healthcare system to grow, but on the backs of the largely poor women who work in it, and that kind of cycle just spins on and on and on. 
it implicates more and more people, both as workers, but also as patients in different ways, right? And as people who themselves are part of depending upon it. It allows you to think about a quite vast constituency, potentially, for a very different kind of healthcare system. And in making a different kind of healthcare system, a very different kind of society. I mean, I think it's a big enough part of our society that to remake it would be to remake a lot about who we are and how we live together. Okay. On the one hand, I don't think we should confuse the instance of the kind of industrial working class with the general category of social class or of working classes. On the other hand, it may be that there were various things about industrial production that made capitalism work. And it can't really survive as a sort of social system without some of those qualities like regular productivity gains, etc. And for that reason, the kind of new instance of the working class that I'm describing, we can both recognize as being another instance in the cycle and also being in a qualitatively new situation yeah, yeah, yeah. that allows it to test and challenge the social system in new ways. That might undo capitalism itself. That's the ambition that's... of the book, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Oh, that's such a good answer. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonik Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.